and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with what appears to be an act of terrorism by Vladimir Putin against his former chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who he labelled as a traitor two months ago for challenging Putin's leadership in a dramatic march by Wagner mercenaries on Moscow. Joining us to discuss this brutal hit on a murderous brute by the boss of a mafia state is Olga Lautmann, a non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilise Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations, available at olgalautmann.substack.com. Then, ahead of tonight's first Republican presidential primary debate, we'll discuss how the one person not on the stage has already won the debate, while his closest challenger has just dropped 11 points in the polls after rebooting his floundering campaign. Joining us is Justin Higgins, who has worked as a lobbyist for a Fortune 400 agribusiness company, as a policy advisor to a Tea Party, now Freedom Caucus member of Congress, and worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. He now hosts the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. Then finally, we'll speak with Jeffrey Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the U.S. National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies, specializing in Russian and Eurasian affairs, and a non-residential senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he serves as an advisor on U.S.-Russian relations in the United States Department of State and is the author of Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics, and Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. We'll discuss his article at Foreign Policy, Next Door to, Next Door to Ukraine, Moscow's Grip is Tightening. And joining us now is Olga Lautmann, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who's also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used in their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations, available at olgalautmann.substack.com. Stack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And it's not being confirmed, uh, but it probably at any moment it will be that Evgeny Prokhorin is dead. He was listed on the manifest of a plane that went down about 100 miles northwest of Moscow. The plane had left Moscow's airport around 6 p.m. local time, bound for St. Petersburg. There's been video of seeing it sort of falling from the sky. It looks like it suffered uh, damage. Uh, there was a trail of smoke and a, a half of a wing shot off. And supposedly there were 10 people on board the plane. Eight bodies have been recovered. Brigozin was on the manifest along with his deputy, which is unusual that they would both fly together. Is that Utkin, by the way? Do you know who, who else was on the manifest? Well, allegedly the chatter is that Utkin, who is 
the founder of uh, Wagner, after his uh, GRU call sign, Wagner, uh, was on the plane. Um, that is the chatter that both Prigozhin and Utkin are dead. And Utkin, of course, is an admirer of Hitler and has SS tattoos all over him, and his call sign is Wagner in the GRU because he admired Hitler's favorite composer, Wagner. So I don't know that too many people are going to shed too many tears for either of them, right? These are pretty nasty people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been advocating for a long time to have Wagner um, mercenary group um, designated as a terrorist organization in the U.S. I know a few countries in Europe have done so primarily in Eastern Europe. And I mean, wherever they operate, they leave a trail of atrocities. They were created initially for the annexation of um, Crimea and occupation of Donbass. Then they were went to operate in Syria and again, you know, left committed mass war crimes in Syria. And then uh, they expanded operations across Africa. And I mean, we saw the UN report with Wagner where um, they went in and destroyed villages and massacred people and raped women. I mean, it definitely. And then we see their latest activities, you know, in Ukraine, which are war crimes. Um, so absolutely not. There's uh, definitely not going to be any tears shed for Prigozhin or um, Utkin, if they indeed are dead. Well, you mentioned that they should be designated, Wagner should be designated as a terrorist group. But surely Vladimir Putin should be designated as a terrorist if he's the author of this assassination, which it appears to be. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, a few weeks ago at the Aspen Forum, that the head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, was asked a question about Prigozhin and what he thought his fate might be. And he said, revenge is a dish best served cold, and that Vladimir Putin is biding his time, cleaning up the mess that mutiny created, and then he will strike. So it looks like Burns was right on target. Well, yes, absolutely. Look, um, Prigozhin and his Wagnerites, you know, escalated last fall when they started going after the defense ministry, after Shoigu, Gerasimov, you know, inadvertently after Putin. Um, and, I mean, they were crossing all lines, lines that, you know, and no one could cross, not in the Soviet Union and not modern Russia. Um, and they got away with a lot. And obviously they had, you know, help on the inside because then during the failed mutiny, they wouldn't have been able to pull that off and go that far, you know, towards Moscow without having loyalties inside the GRU, inside Defense Ministry, and inside FSB. I mean, it would have been impossible because you saw, as they were going town to town, they um, basically, you know, had an open road. No one really tried to stop them. So, um, absolutely, I think, you know, and... Uh, uh, Putin doesn't forget these things. Putin views all traitors, you know, and, and responds to them. And we've seen this. He will get people across the world and murder them wherever they are. On the other hand, Prigozhin is a assassin himself. So, I mean, we have a lot of questions swirling around, you know, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, if Prigozhin indeed 
is dead from this. And if he is, that means that Putin did order it, you know, to happen now. We are now two months, actually almost to the day, of Prigozhin's failed mutiny. And, you know, Putin absolutely has always operated with signs and killing his opponents and journalists on, you know, specific days and as an anniversary. You know, one journalist was killed on his birthday. Um, so that could be one option. The other thing is that Prigozhin could have had this staged himself because, like I said, he is an assassin. He knows very well what the Kremlin capabilities are. He has carried them out for the past decade for the Kremlin. And, you know, and Putin absolutely should be designated a terrorist because Putin himself bragged how he had funded um, Wagner from state funds. So basically, he admitted to funding a terrorist organization over the past year, you know, and bragged about it. Um, so it will be interesting to see where this goes. And lastly, no one has seen Prigozhin since the failed coup. There were photos put out. There was a murky video, which, you know, with Wagner capabilities. It was incredible that you couldn't even tell the people in the video. It's allegedly uh, Prigozhin and Utkin, but all you saw were silhouettes uh, of them. Um, and then we saw pictures of Prigozhin with the African leaders. But no one has seen Prigozhin alive since the mutiny. So, you know, maybe he has been already dead and this just happened to be as cover. I mean... When it comes to the Kremlin, it is a house of mirrors, and it's, you know, for a while going to be hard to get answers. Well, but there's been video of Prigozhin in the last months. Isn't there a video from Africa, Central African Republic? There was a video from Belarus, but again, uh, the video was so murky that you couldn't really tell who was in the video, and Wagner is excellent at creating you know, videos, fake videos that they've been spreading around because Prigozhin, on top of the mercenary group, he was also running the troll farm, you know, to interfere in U.S. elections and European elections and putting out fake content, fake videos. So the fact that this video that was put out of him, you know, and it was this murky and suddenly they lost their video recording capabilities was a little bit strange, but um, there's nothing really dated. And I can tell you personally, I've been monitoring the situation inside of Russia. I have never seen Russian state media, specifically after the failed mutiny, like for about three weeks, they were, you know, reporting on every single sighting of Prigozhin. He's in St. Petersburg. He's in Moscow. He's here. He's there. And they were trying extremely hard to you know, show that he's moving around Russia perfectly fine, which was very odd, you know, considering the circumstances that he did just, you know, weeks prior try to overthrow Putin. But he did meet with Putin after Putin had, had basically called him a mutineer. That is according to the Kremlin. I don't buy that one bit because, mm -hmm. honestly, Putin hasn't met with, I mean, the story from uh, Putin's press secretary, Peskov, was that he, Putin, met with Prigozhin and, you know, Wagner commanders. Putin hasn't met with these many people, with anybody since COVID. 
um, this amount of people, nonetheless, you know, uh, people he views as traitors that he would allow them in, you know, for a meeting. And I don't think they would trust to go into a meeting with Putin, knowing that, you know, people sometimes meet with Putin and get poisoned and that's their last days. So I don't buy it. That came from the Kremlin. It was a very crafted story. But again, no one had seen the meeting. No one confirmed the meeting. It just came out of Putin's press secretary, Piotrko. But if this plane took off from Moscow airport, as we're told, and it crashed about 100 miles northwest of Moscow on its way to St. Petersburg, if that is the case, and on the plane was not only Evgeny Pogrosin, the head of Wagner, but the also other founder, the co-founder of Wagner, Dmitry Utkin, was on the plane as well, that would indicate that he has been able to get around the country, right? I don't understand why a guy like him would even get aboard a private plane because they're so easy to sabotage, whether it was shot down by a Russian Air Force jet with a missile or whether there was a bomb on board. Who knows? But it's an extremely easy way to dispose of somebody, isn't it? So let's begin with... And it's with- not a first. Because Putin has murdered generals on a plane when there was a, you know, helicopter downing about, I believe it was like a decade ago. And um, also one of the um, uh, prosecutor generals for, uh, you know, who was working with um, uh, Veselnitskaya, who was involved with the, um, Pogo- uh, not Pogosian, I apologize, Veselnitskaya, who was involved with the Prevazon case, and met with uh, the Trump people, Manafort and Kushner and whatnot. Um, she was reporting to this prosecutor general. He was on a plane and the helicopter, I'm sorry, on a helicopter. And the helicopter got shot down. But then they reported they had two bullets in the head on top of the plane crash. So, I mean, Prigozhin, again, should know these tactics. It's nothing new for Russia. Yet, for some reason or other, he was in Moscow and he got aboard... The Wagner plane, there were two planes. Uh, he was on the first one that took off. And it looks as if he was aboard, uh, along with Utkin, the deputy head, uh, co-founder of Wagner, and they're both dead. At least that seems to be the case. So what's this going to do, though? For example, Putin just addressed the BRICS conference in South Africa, the, the so-called Global South, who have been either against Ukraine in this war or beyond being on the fence. How can these world leaders and, and their supporters in the global south not recognize that Putin is a gangster and he runs a mafia state and he just committed an act of terrorism? Well, I mean, I'm sure they should recognize it. And speaking of the BRICS conference, let's not forget that Putin was physically supposed to be there And because he has an arrest warrant out for war crimes, he wasn't able to. So he had to address them, you know, via video Um, today, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, they really should. And I mean, this is not the first. Putin has used polonium on British soil to assassinate Litvinenko. Putin used a Novichok, a chemical weapon, to try to take out Skripal and, uh, for, you know, who was the former KGB 
who he viewed as a traitor. And I mean, there is a long, long list of uh, uh, people that have been assassinated at the orders of the Kremlin. So, I mean, this was all known. It's just it seems that, you know, the African uh, countries uh, continue and, uh, you know, and Central America and South America uh, continue to do business with, with Russia. I mean, but absolutely, he is the head of a mafia state. He is, a, uh, you know, dangerous war criminal who has an arrest warrant out for him and who has a track record of ordering, ordering assassinations. Well, Litvinenko, who, yeah, Litvinenko, who was killed with plutonium in London, he was a former uh, KGB officer who knew Putin well, and he was the guy that provided evidence that Putin had blown up or that the FSB had blown up apartment buildings out in the outskirts of Moscow um, for in, at, on Putin's orders, killing about 300 Russian citizens in order for Putin to come to national attention as, the, as he launched his second Chechen war. So Putin rode into power via terrorism, but terrorism aimed at his own people, where 300 of them died. And, and of course exactly. now... Now we're witnessing another terrorist act where 10 people died, including, it looks like, the two founders of Wagner, Pogosin and Utkin. Exactly. I mean, this is how Putin came to power, uh, by committing terrorism, by killing Russians. Um, and he had Petrushev, you know, there, who was the head of FSB at the time, helping. So, I mean, you know, and now Petrushev is still in Putin's inner circle making, you know, very sensitive decisions and has uh, is privy to sensitive information. So, I mean, this is who has been running the state for 20-plus years. Well, just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, it's always astounded me why the U.S. government forever treated Putin like a statesman and a world leader, account for the, as we've already expressed, puzzlement at why... He's still popular with uh, so many leaders in the global south, and he's also popular on the far right here in America and, and on the far left who support him and support his war against Ukraine. So it is very puzzling. So is this going to change the picture in any way? Because Prigozhin was pretty popular within Russia, not that the people necessarily have much influence over what the government does. Um, I do think it is going to change things. And by the way, thank you for mentioning that, because, you know, the several resets that the United States attempted, the whitewashing by, you know, European countries is exactly why there is a genocide happening in Ukraine today. Russia got away with countless assassinations, um, you know, uh, war crimes in Syria, war crimes across Africa, Libya. I mean, you name it, wherever Russia operates, they leave a trail of atrocities. And, you know, frankly, we should have a uh, long time ago, you know, known that Putin is running a mafia state, that he is a terrorist. It was very clear from the way he came into power and it was all overlooked um, which is exactly why we are here today. I mean, had he built, been dealt with appropriately and shunned and Russia sanctioned, you know, after the Georgia invasion, after, you know, um, 
uh, he called it Syria after Ukraine, um, then we wouldn't be here today. Um, but as far as Prigozhin, I um, do see the chatter on Telegram channels, and there's a complete disarray. And I that is the one reason, you know, Putin absolutely would order this murder. That's without a doubt. The thing that puzzles me is why he would order it right now when he was trying to placate Prigozhin's followers by, you know, showing that all is well with Prigozhin. And, you know, as with Peskov coming out and saying that they had a meeting and as, you know, with Prigozhin, reports of Prigozhin walking freely around and that they're going to relocate, uh, I mean, the base that they relocated to Belarus and whatnot. So, I mean, this is going to cause a lot of disarray inside of uh, Russia, I believe, because you already see uh, the chatter and chaos on Telegram with loyalists to Wagner and Prigozhin, and in general, just people, the hard nationalists inside of Russia who... And don't think Putin is going far enough in Ukraine um, and whatnot. So I do think that it's just going to add to the unraveling of Russia. And um, and we're going to see more chaos result uh, from this inside of Russia. Well, thank you for joining us here today, Olga Lattman. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Olga Lapman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who's also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracy. And she has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russian intelligence operations available at olgalautman.substack.com. We're going to take a brief station break and we'll be back ahead of tonight's first Republican presidential primary campaign to discuss how one person not on the stage has already won the debate while his closest challenger has just dropped 11 points in the polls after rebooting his floundering campaign. Kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you wait for me like you'll never let me go. Cause I believe in on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe, I hate to go. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Justin Higgins, who has worked as a lobbyist for a Fortune 400 agribusiness, as a policy advisor to a Tea Party, now House Freedom Caucus member of Congress, and worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. He now hosts the Politics and Media 101 podcast. Welcome to Background Briefing, 
Justin Higgins. Thank you very much, Ian. I'm glad to join you and your audience here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I've spoken to a few recovering Republicans, but you actually have made the switch to Democrat, which is pretty hard for Republicans to do. I mean, our politics are incredibly tribal. So how did you manage to go from being a Republican to a Democrat, as opposed to a recovering Republican, as many are in like the, uh, the Lincoln Project and others? Yeah, Ian. Well, I think the difference between us is I'm honest with myself. I, I think that we have a two-party system here in the United States. And the way that I view the Republican Party from my time working from them in the most extreme faction of that party and then for Trump is that they don't believe in our institutions, for starters, right? They don't believe in the democracy that we have, at least these most extreme members. The rest of the party very clearly is not going to stand up to them, as evidenced by not going forth and convicting Trump after the January 6th insurrection with the second impeachment. Uh, and lastly, if one party is not going to stand up for democracy in America, that only leaves you with another one other option, which is the Democratic Party. And that is to say nothing of how Republicans approach race, uh, you know, gender orientation um, and a whole host of other issues. So tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, we will see eight Republicans on stage, but the 900-pound gorilla in the room will not be there, Donald Trump. And he's, I think he's already won the debate, right? Because his presence or the lack, of, the lack thereof is going to be hanging over it, don't you think? I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. He, he won the debate because of what you mentioned, right? His presence just hanging over the debate and Trump being in the back of everybody's minds, uh, but also how he scheduled his arraignment in Georgia to be on Thursday. Uh, the, the debate in GOP politics and Democratic politics, it's valuable for the millions of eyeballs that you get without Trump there. There won't be as many, which you alluded to, uh, but then it's even more valuable because of the media play and attention and the clips that go around on social media and all the networks and all the podcasts after the debate. But what Trump has done is he's essentially sucked all the oxygen out of the room where instead of focusing on what happened at the debate and people's merits, we're going to be focusing on him again. So on stage, there'll be Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who's just dropped 11 points in the latest uh, Yahoo News YouGov poll after his campaign reboot. So that he's clearly on the downward slide, either quite radically, as a matter of fact. And the next one down in terms of poll numbers is Ramaswamy, who a month ago was at 3%, and now he's at 8%. You've got uh, then Governor Tim Scott at 4%. And uh, former UN ambassador Nikki Haley next at three percent, Trump of course at fifty-two percent. Then you got Mike Pence, who, for the life of me, I don't understand how a man cannot criticize somebody who tried to have him lynched. For the life of me, I just don't understand why he can't man up in that regard. Then you've got Chris Christie, who'll be the only critic on stage along with uh, Asa Hutchison, and then of course. North Dakota's governor, Doug Bergen, he may actually not show up because he injured himself playing basketball. So that's the lineup. So let's start with DeSantis. 
the pundits are saying he's really going to have to step up. I don't think he can, don't you? I mean, I think this guy is, there's so much less to the, than meets the eye with him. And the more you see him, the less you like him. I could, again, I agree. I, I don't see, uh, you know, it, it's hard to predict anything in politics. So let me just state that. Um, but I do think it's hard for DeSantis to, uh, you know, at least stop the negative momentum. You mentioned an 11 point drop. That is uh, massive. So what what does he need to do? He needs to come out be and be a good debater. That means he needs to be able to uh, land punches. That means that he needs to be able to parry attacks because he is going to be attacked. He's going to be the focus of most of the people on stage. And then he needs to be able to present a vision, his vision, the Ron DeSantis vision for America. And it can't just be doom and gloom. There needs to be some hope, some economic messaging. All of these things, Ian, not only has he not been able to do any of them on the campaign trail, hence the 11-point drop, uh, but he's also a historically extremely weak debater because of his inability to think on his feet, because of the way that he sounds annoyed at the slightest criticism, and also, as everybody knows, his facial mannerisms. So I think that he really is facing an uphill battle. All of that said, I do think he is the best challenger to Trump uh, specifically because he's closest in Iowa at the moment. And if anybody wants to beat Trump, they're going to have to try and win Iowa and get some momentum. But that's what Ron DeSantis is running for. He's running for president of Iowa, not president of the United States. His entire campaign now is basically being cut back from a national campaign to an Iowa campaign. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, he is <laughs> uh, the knight in, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the movie. Uh, it's this gr Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He is the knight who loses an arm and he's still ready to fight. And at the end of the fight, it's just him and his head. And he's still <laughs> talking some smack, how he's going to fight back and win. Um, that's basically what you just described with DeSantis. Yeah, all of his eggs are in one basket. He needs to first make it to Iowa. Uh, but he needs to win to change the momentum. And um, surprisingly, you mentioned the national polls. Now I'm going to give you the other perspective of what GOP establishment folks are saying. They're saying that the state level polls, specifically in Iowa, aren't as strong for Trump. Echelon Insights, a very reputable GOP polling firm, had Trump at 33 percent, I believe, in Iowa in their most recent poll announced yesterday. So that is to say, again, I don't think DeSantis can do it. I agree with you. Uh, but the change in strategy from a tactical point looking at the electoral map makes sense if Trump is isn't indeed as weak as he may appear in current polling in Iowa. So let's turn to Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who's coming up in the polls. How could this guy ever get elected in a Republican primary, being a Hindu, when the Christian right dominates the Republican Party? Well, I mean, to, to Steelman, his argument in his case, um, Mitt Romney faced a lot of similar critiques and attacks for his religion. He, he's a Mormon and specifically a lot of the evangelical Christians. Heck, in a lot of the mainstream media were, were asking questions about how could a Mormon be elected in the GOP primary. And it turns out he, he ran away with it. So I, I don't think his religion is 
as big of an issue as it might appear at face value. I do think the fact that he's running a very similar campaign to Ron DeSantis, where he's a super online weirdo cultivating all of these conspiracy theories, uh, most recently with 9-11, um, combined with the fact that he's a flagrant grifter who, you know, just lies uh, like pathologically. I think those are bigger weaknesses than his religion. And Tim Scott, who is also very religious, um, he seems to be a comfort candidate, right? An, an alternative to Trump because he's a nice guy and he's black and he means well. And as I say, he, he's a good Christian to the extent I think he overlooks a lot of the flaws in his own party. Well, I, I don't know how much his race plays in, you know, the the outlook of his candidacy. I think to your point, though, he has been the happy warrior, right? Um, as we started out, Trump's not going to be there. So the question of the debate is, how did the contenders approach Trump? And we are, already know the answer with the exception of Hutchinson and Chris Christie. They're all going to largely defend or ignore Trump. Um, so they're all shooting for second place and they're all shooting for Trump to have some type of epic failure and then for them to come out on top in Iowa and then make it to South Carolina and go from there. So Tim Scott's path to the nomination is he believes he can get away with uh, building some momentum by being the alternative to Trump, not by going head to head but by presenting a positive vision for America, which quite frankly, none of the other candidates are doing. So in that regard, uh, it is smart. He thinks because like you mentioned, he's super religious, that he will resonate with the evangelicals in Iowa. Iowa typically doesn't like Trump. They didn't vote for him in 2016 in the primary. Um, so that combined with his outlook, maybe he can catch some lightning in a bottle. And then guess what? South Carolina's up. Uh, after New Hampshire, he is the senator for South Carolina. So if everything goes right from his perspective, yeah, sure, he has a chance. I think, though, it's very important to note, um, we mentioned Mitt Romney, who was more milk toast, right? He was more subdued and calmer than somebody like John McCain, who came out. However, unlike Tim Scott, Mitt Romney had a mean left hook. He had a mean jab. Like, he would be able to put something witty and incisive together and just cripple somebody, uh, cut them down in size. And that's what you need, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. You can't just, uh, you know, um, promote this dream. You need to be able to, to punch American voters like that uh, for good reason. It, it shows some backbone um, and willingness to believe in yourself. So the, that's the question. Can Tim Scott take off the gloves or is he just going to be in that one lane of that happy warrior? Well, but then what you just said applies in spades to Mike Pence, doesn't it? When I mentioned earlier that I'm absolutely mystified why this man cannot bring himself to criticize the guy that put a target on his back and they were trying to lynch him and hang Mike Pence. They built a gallows on January the 6th during the insurrection. Talk about time to man up. What would happen, do you think, Justin, if... Finally, Mike Pence stood up and, and addressed the 70% of the Republican Party who still believe that Donald Trump won the election and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. If he stood up and said, you know, the guy tried to have me killed, he's completely 
insane, irresponsible, dangerous, stupid, reckless, uninformed, totally selfish, doesn't give a damn about America, only cares about himself, and is running to stay out of jail. I mean, I, I know he would never say those things, but what's with the guy? What do you think? Well, he should, number one. Number two, what's with the guy? I think um, he's a nuanced character, right? We love to put people black or white in the box or outside of the box. Um, because my first reaction to your question is that he's a coward. But we do have to remember that on January 6th, he still ended up doing the right thing. And I know it's not enough, right, to do right, the but he should, But minimum. Justin, he, Justin, he should be proud of that, don't you think? Don't I, you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Ian, I, I agree. He should, be, he should be coming out and saying everything you said about trump the the problem is it's it's far too little far too late and he has nobody else echoing what he's saying other than chris christie who republican primary voters don't like now that is uh, so um to, to bluntly answer your question i don't think it's going to change the views of anybody of the voters regarding uh the gop primary if if mike pence were to come out and do it i think that folks like me and you and others would have a little bit at least more respect for uh, vice former Vice President Mike Pence if he came out and said what we all know. Um, but I, I just think, to be very frank, uh, the whole GOP and the right-wing media ecosystem has defended Trump indictment after indictment after indictment. And if all the leading voices in the party and the media in the grassroots are going to defend Trump, what does, you know, one lonely voice who's at, I believe, probably one or two percent in the polls coming out against Trump do? And unfortunately, it shows you how terrible of a state the GOP is in. I don't think it does much. Well, it's going to be on Fox News and Fox News is largely responsible for spreading the lies and which have metastasized, as I mentioned, about 70% of Republicans believe in the big lie. And that is frightening. I don't know what percentage of the American people that is. It's probably close to 30%. Literally, are living in an alternative universe, believing alternative facts. I find that more frightening than the politics. It's a sociological phenomenon that's quite disturbing. It's the most disturbing thing to me. You just hit the nail on the head. I you know, countries and governments and great powers throughout history are built on shared values and obviously shared sources of information that is now changed in our new evolving media ecosystem where we can all go to social media and listen to one specific person as opposed to the New York Times or one of the big three broadcast networks uh, or even back further, the printing presses that were out there. Um, so I just don't know how, without, you know, getting into a very long dissertation, how America credibly can continue with two parties and the voters in two parties, largely 50% of the country in, in one party or the other, disagreeing on one plus one adding up to two. I, I, there is obviously hope and there is a way, um, but if we don't get this under control, it's very clearly not sustainable. And to Fox itself, when Trump's third indictment in Washington, D.C., that very evening he had dinner with the top executives at Fox who begged him to be on this stage tonight 
at 9pm Eastern, 6pm Pacific, and he turned them down. So that indicates that Trump has got leverage over Fox, right? Oh, he, he has a ton of leverage. And, and let's just put it like this. My former boss at the RNC went into the White House, wound up being an SVP for Fox News and specifically Rupert Murdoch uh, in the kind of war room, crisis management, uh, opposition research aspect of things. He actually just got fired because of a lot of the lies that we are talking about or alluding to on your program here. Um, it, it, they all need Trump in, in the right wing media, whether they're hiring his former comms director to basically uh, run a good portion of the network or they're begging him to show up to the debate. Here's the thing, though, Ian, like it, it makes no sense for Trump to show up to a debate based on his standing in the polls unless things get more fraught and more close in Iowa, unless something happens to change the dynamic of this race, which anything can happen, but it's just, there's nothing to lead us to believe that Trump is going to be in serious danger. So then if he's not going to be in serious danger, why should he subject himself to potentially vicious attacks from Chris Christie, who's one of the best debaters for just debating? We're not talking ideology of any Democrat or Republican out there. He is a fantastic political communicator, as evidenced by in 2016, he ended Marco Rubio's campaign and basically made him a laughingstock for the rest of his political career by calling him a robot and prototypical DC politician. Why would Trump risk that with really no potential gain? Well, uh, unfortunately, my job obliges me to watch the debate. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess you're going to be watching it too. And what, just in closing, what uh, would you tell our listeners? Why should they watch the debate? Yeah, so I think you need to watch the debate because, number one, it, it shows the state of the Republican Party. Uh, number two, you know, we all think that Trump is inevitable, but he's not inherently invincible. So if somebody is able to consolidate support and really it looks like it's going to be DeSantis versus Ramaswamy and DeSantis's uh, super PAC basically released an outline of his debate strategy as a way to get around FEC, Federal Election Commission rules, because super PACs are not allowed to coordinate with candidates or their campaigns. Um, and in that dossier, hundred couple hundred page dossier, they said that he, DeSantis needs to attack Ramaswamy. So is he able to attack him? Does he land anything? And how does Ramaswamy, the second in the polls, like you mentioned, to start off the show, uh, respond? So I think those are that's a very important narrative. And the last narrative here that I think is interesting and nobody's really talking about, I alluded to it last question, does Chris Christie just focus on Trump, which you know, would be boring and Trump's not on stage, so the impact might be negligible? Or does he decide to take his Christie knife and turn it to somebody on stage and literally, potentially, end their political career or at least their run for president in 2024? So those are a couple of reasons why I think tonight's going to be fascinating and, and people should tune in. Well, Justin Higgins, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Justin Higgins, who has worked as a lobbyist for a Fortune 400 agribusiness company and as a policy advisor to a Tea Party now House Freedom Caucus member of Congress. And he also worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, 
all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. And now he hosts the Politics and Plus Media 101 podcast. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how Moscow is tightening its grip on Belarus, Georgia and Moldova. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jeffrey Mankoff, who is a Distinguished Research Fellow at the United States National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies, specializing in Russian and Eurasian affairs, and a non-resident senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he served as an advisor on U.S.-Russia relations at the United States Department of State and is the author of Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics and Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, Next Door to Ukraine, Moscow's Grip is Tightening. And he joins us, but his views do not represent the government or the United States Department of Defense. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Mankoff. Thank you. So... What's happening in uh, Belarus now? On Monday, the U.S. Embassy in Minsk uh, issued a directive warning people to get out. The State Department is warning people to get out immediately. There's a rush to get out. A lot of the border crossings are closed. To get a flight out, it's almost impossible. A ticket from Minsk to London is going at for $10,000. So what's the alarm about? What's happening there that would require U.S. citizens getting out? Well, based on what we've seen reported, it seems the biggest factor is the, is the shutting of, of borders. The, the neighboring states, including Poland and the, and the Baltic states, seem to be increasingly worried about some kind of cross-border provocation, potentially involving forces from the Wagner Group who were dispatched to Belarus after the abortive mutiny in, in Russia a couple months ago or you know, other kinds of, of provocations and are, are closing their borders, are moving security forces uh, and military forces closer to the, the border with Belarus. And so under the circumstances, it's just gonna be much harder for people to, to leave if things continue escalating or if there's some kind of a crisis where um, the government in Minsk decides that it's closing the, it's preventing people from, from leaving the country. So let's talk about your article on foreign policy, Jeff Manko. Next door to Ukraine, Moscow's grip is tightening. In Belarus, Georgia and Moldova, the Kremlin is waging a quiet war to consolidate its hegemony. And you point out that there was a certain amount of restraint on the part of Russia until the war in Ukraine. And now, obviously, Putin is pretty bitter 
about the support that Ukraine is getting from NATO and the West and feels, I think he's made it pretty clear, he feels he's actually at war with the United States, not Ukraine. So to some extent, all bets are off. But it seems that the one place where, I mean, apart from we talked about Belarus and how much Lukashenko's, particularly after the people of, of Belarus took to the streets in massive numbers after that stolen election, he's had to turn to Russia for more control and he's had to rely on Putin's Praetorian Guard to uh, keep his internal security people in line. But what's happened in Georgia has somewhat gone under the radar and its leadership now is clearly pro-Russian, even though the country's being inundated with the Russian draft dodgers. So what happened there? Why, did that, why, did that, why was there a shift from yeah. a country that wanted to be a part of NATO to now a government that seems to be sympathetic to Putin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you made a distinction between a country uh, that wants to be part of NATO and a government that is at least inclined much more strongly towards Russia. And I think that distinction is important because on balance, public opinion in Georgia is still pretty strongly pro-Western. The ruling party, the government that's been in power for the past decade is less so, and they have eroded uh, a lot of the, the democratic opening that Georgia underwent in the in the previous decade from the, the Rose Revolution of 2003 up until 2013. Um, and so now you have a much more flawed democracy, I suppose, in Georgia and, and more electoral manipulation that the ruling party uses to, to stay in power. It's a kind of uh, illiberal democracy, I guess, akin to, to what you've seen in, in some other countries in, in Europe and Eurasia. And there, that said, even within the ruling party, I think there is a diversity of views about the war and about uh, the relationship with Russia. On the one hand, you have people who argue that purely uh, from pragmatic considerations, Georgia has to toe a careful line because it is vulnerable, because it's not a NATO member, because it's a small country, uh, because it doesn't share a common border with NATO apart from Turkey. And therefore, uh, it can't risk getting crosswise with Russia in a way that could leave it exposed to, to military action along the lines of, of what it suffered in 2008. What I think you've seen from the the current leadership in, in Tbilisi, though, goes beyond that. And it has been a kind of uh, actively tilting towards Russia in a lot of ways. So refusing requests to send military assistance to Ukraine. Um, the prime minister at one point blamed the West for starting the war, has called for a negotiated settlement, not talking about Ukrainian territorial integrity, which is kind of ironic given that Georgia's territorial integrity has been similarly violated by Russia. So there, there seems to be, you know, at, at least some voices within the, the ruling party who have more of an overtly pro-Russian agenda. Some of that, I think, has to do with the preferences and inclinations of the of the main financial backers of, of the party who, you know, have their own ties to Russia. And it's a source of, of much frustration uh, among the Georgian public and, and civil society, which, again, continues to be relatively strongly inclined towards towards Europe and the West. On top of that, though, you know, one thing I would add is that in 2008, NATO promised that Georgia, along with Ukraine, would become a member. And here we are now 
15 years later. And even before the outbreak of, of the conflict, the full-scale conflict in Ukraine, uh, there was very little prospect that that was going to happen in any kind of uh, foreseeable future. And so I think there's a strand opinion in Georgia that uh, has come to believe that the West was not serious uh, and that they talked a good game about integrating Georgia and giving Georgia a path into your Atlantic institutions, but that those promises weren't followed up by concrete actions and that as a result, uh, there's been a kind of disappointment, a kind of uh, recognition that Georgia remains in this very vulnerable place in this gray zone. And so it may have to uh, make alternative arrangements. Well, the backer for the Georgian Dream Party uh, is the former Prime Minister Ivanishvili, who happens to be one of the largest shareholders in Gazprom. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be a part of what Putin does, which is the, to weaponize billionaires who act as cutoffs, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so that's an example, right? And he's the main financial backer, and uh, that's Putin's guy like he had the guy in Ukraine that he had to swap for all those prisoners. Medvedchuk, yeah. Yeah, Medvedchuk, yeah. So let's talk then about Moldova. What's happening there? It looks as if there was a kind of effort at a push and there's still the Transnistria Strip with the, where Russian troops are deployed. What's the current status there in terms of, of Putin meddling in Moldova? Yeah, so Moldova is very much on the front lines uh, of this conflict. It's also received a significant number of refugees, which is quite a burden on, on what is Europe's poorest country. Uh, it's a small country. Uh, it, it's facing a lot of, of economic burden uh, as a result of the conflict including the you know the increased difficulty of, of trade with Ukraine. Um, you mentioned Transnistria, which is a, a separatist region, uh, primarily on the east bank of the, the Dniester River, so bordering Ukraine, with a, a population that's more heavily uh, Slavic, so uh, you know Russian and Ukrainian speaking, rather than um, Romanian speaking, as is the rest of, of Moldova. There are Russian troops uh, who are based in Transnistria, have been since the early 1990s when there was a, a conflict there over the region's status. Um, and in the initial stages of the war, of the full-scale conflict in Ukraine, Russia attempted to take Odessa, uh, which is one of the main Ukrainian ports in the western part of the Black Sea, through an amphibious landing. Uh, failed to do that, but has continued uh, attempting to, to attack Odessa. Um, and I think is, Odessa remains very much on the uh, on the radar screen for the for the Russian invasion, and if they if the Russians were able to consolidate control over Odessa, uh, that would allow them to uh, access Transnistria directly over land because of the uh, Transnistria's location along the re the western border of Ukraine. And so, what happens uh, on the ground in Ukraine is is very much of concern to to the government in Chisinau, uh, the Moldovan capital. Meanwhile, though. There is a uh, strongly pro-Western government in power in Chisinau that has taken steps, much as the Ukrainian government has taken steps to root out the sources of malign Russian influence. And in response, there's a pretty concerted uh, Russian-backed campaign of, of destabilization. Earlier this year, uh, the uh, Moldovan Prime Minister, Maya Sandu, gave a, a press conference where she talked about Russian attempts to organize a, a coup. 
just recently, uh, I guess last month, a number of personnel from the Russian embassy in Chisinau were uh, ejected from the country on accusations that they'd been involved in organizing a coup or uh, activities designed to destabilize the country. Some of the major opposition parties have received Russian backing, and the leader uh, of one of them, former prime minister named Igor Dadon, uh, is now being tried for treason. Another one, an oligarch named Ilan Shore, uh, also faces charges for corruption and money laundering. He's now in self-imposed exile uh, in Israel. So there are, uh, you know, you, you talked about the weaponization of billionaires, and I think that's a tactic that we see in Moldova as well. But it's also layered over the the separatist conflict in, in Transnistria. Um, there's another ethnic minority region uh, called Gagauzia, where there are similar kinds of tensions and where Russia has also made inroads with the local leadership. Uh, there was a gubernatorial election there a couple months ago. Uh, the candidate who won was backed by this exiled oligarch. And among her campaign promises was that she wanted to open a representative office in Moscow, uh, which, of course, then would allow uh, Russia to consolidate its own presence and its own influence in the in the ethnic minority region of Gagauzia. And so in addition to the weaponization of billionaires, we've, we're seeing the, the sort of weaponization of ethnic resentments, which is a tactic that the Soviet government and, and the Russian government after it have become masters at, at playing on. It's something uh, at the heart of the of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, it was one of the drivers of the Russian uh, intervention in Crimea back in 2014. It was at the heart of the, the Russian intervention in Georgia in 2008 with the, the breakaway regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And so we're seeing that playbook being uh, dusted off in Moldova once again. Well, Jeffrey Mankoff, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.